This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I will be your charming host today. Now, the episode we have on tap today, or the topic, I should say, is one that was a special request by you guys, by the listeners. I had a listener reach out to me on Twitter and ask if I would cover the situation that's taking place in Venezuela. And so I agreed to do that. It's a fascinating situation, a tale of a, a country that's really undergone some, some pretty difficult times, to say the least. And as we'll touch on in a second, uh, it's a country that actually started out very, very strong. They were one of the strongest countries in the world at one point, and they have uh, really gone off the edge of a cliff. So I think it's a great topic. I'm really glad somebody suggested it, and I'm excited to be doing that. But on that note, if you have a topic out there that you would like me to cover, something in international politics, historical politics, some sort of political theory or something, please hit me up, let me know. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I always leave those links at the end of the episode, tell you how to how to reach me. So if you have any topics you want me to talk about, please get in contact with me and let me know, and I will be happy to uh, put those on the list. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into Venezuela. Now, for those of you who have been paying attention to the news lately, you have probably seen this. It's been all over Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and pretty much all of the uh, networks across the spectrum. And basically what's happening there is that Venezuela has a new self-proclaimed president. And this is a pretty big deal. Uh, they've been undergoing protests for a while now that are mostly related to their economy and to some of the corruption that they see taking place in government. And, and their economy is pretty terrible right now. It's one of the worst in the world. Massive inflation, terrible unemployment, people are starving. It, it's pretty, pretty bad. So they've had these protests that have been going on for quite a while. Uh, against the government and the, the particular leader who is running the country, a man by the name of Nicolas Maduro. Now, Maduro is still technically in office. Uh, he's Actually, he's the one who took over after the infamous President Hugo Chavez died back in 2013. You're probably familiar with that name. He'd been around for a very long time. Uh, he's probably one of the more famous world leaders at the time. But Maduro took over after Hugo Chavez died, and since then he's kind of been continuing to consolidate more and more power, becoming more and more authoritarian, which is difficult to do because Hugo Chavez was already fairly authoritarian. But Maduro's policies have pushed even further, and he's really been blamed for a lot of the current crisis that the, that the country is in. And we'll talk about what that crisis entails a little bit more in depth in a minute. But on top of all of this, there was a, a recent re-election in 2018 that Maduro won, and a lot of different countries have refused to recognize that election. They think there's a lot of fraud going on, that it wasn't a valid election, and that Maduro basically shouldn't have won. And so a lot of countries have kind of refused to recognize this re-election, and so hundreds of thousands of protesters have turned out to put pressure on him to 
to either resign, to step down, to hold another election, something like this. And this is the biggest show of force that Venezuela has had in a couple of years. Uh, there was actually one in 2017 that was a pretty big protest as well, and Maduro shut that down with a very deadly uh, show of force. But because of all of this, there is an opposition leader, a man by the name of Juan Guaido, who is uh, fairly young. He's in his mid-30s, I believe, so not actually a whole lot older than I am. And he is the head of the country's parliament. Now, even though Nicolas Maduro really took away the parliament's power uh, a couple years ago, he changed some of the laws around and took away the power that the parliament had, most people still recognize the parliament as the really last bastion of democracy that exists in Venezuela. Uh, it's the last kind of true democratic institution that's still around. And so this guy by the name of Juan Guaido, he's the one who runs the parliament. And so he came out and basically declared himself the interim president and said and he's he was quoted as saying or trying to rescue the country from dictatorship he used that that word dictatorship which is a pretty big deal and the parliament itself has come out and said that maduro's uh, rule and his re-election were illegitimate and they uh, set into place a plan that would allow guaido to take over until there are kind of new elections that can put somebody official in office now, so Guaido is this kind of new self-proclaimed president. Maduro still claims to be president because he's been the leader for a little while. And so there's this kind of fight going on in Venezuela now between these two groups. And this has spilled over into international community as well. Uh, president Trump officially recognized Guaido as the country's interim leader. So from the United States' perspective, formally, we recognize the opposition leader, the leader of parliament, as the country's official president. And uh, the United States is not the only one doing this now. We're probably up, we're over a dozen, I think probably maybe close to two dozen countries have done this as well, including some other big powers, Canada, France, Brazil, Colombia, etc. And so the U.S. is not the only country that's kind of thrown our weight behind the opposition leader, Guaido. But Maduro, who's still in power, at least formally, is very upset by this. He thinks that all of these countries, especially the United States, are supporting what he calls a coup attempt to try to take over the country. And so he's tried to cut off ties with the United States. He's tried to kick out our diplomats and our ambassadors. And the truth is nobody's really sure how this is gonna play out in the end. Maduro has shown no signs that he's listening to these protests and being willing to step down. Guaido is also very prominent. Uh, and so there's a lot that's still up in the air here. Uh, not really sure if other countries might try to get involved a little more directly. If we try to impose sanctions, these sorts of things. And there's still a lot of parties that have not really taken sides yet. But let's, before we get too far down that road, let's back up. I want to talk a little bit about Venezuela's history, just for a minute or two. And then we'll talk a little bit about Maduro himself, and then this opposition leader, just so you know who the, the two sides are. During World War One, there was a huge discovery in Venezuela of massive oil deposits. It's one of the largest oil deposits uh, in the world. And it was discovered right, I think it was like below one of their lakes. I forget which lake it was. I think Maracaibo, something like that. And this was huge for Venezuela. It was pivotal. It completely transformed their entire economy. Prior to this, the Venezuelan economy was mostly dependent, actually very heavily dependent, on agriculture and exporting their agricultural goods. But this discovery of oil completely revolutionized their economy, and it prompted a huge economic boom for Venezuela that, la that really lasted up until the 1980s. So we're talking 60 to 70 years. 
And by 1935, so probably less than 20 years, probably close to 15 years, Venezuela's per capita GDP, that's gross domestic product, was actually the highest in all of Latin America. And by the 1950s or 1960s, I believe it was, uh, Venezuela was actually considered one of the strongest economies in the entire world. They were considered a top five economy. I believe they, were, they came in at number four. And so Venezuela's oil discovery really completely revolutionized this country and turned them into a, an economic powerhouse, uh, at least for, you know, for, for several decades. And actually, uh, for a period too, kind of in the 1950s, 60s, into the 70s, they were seen as being very stable, where they were able to, ver uh, to sustain their strength quite well. They had a fixed exchange rate, and this pretty much carried over uh, this, this great uh, economic boon at least until uh, the early 70s. And the early 70s is where you first start to see some cracks happen. They don't actually f really start to fall until the 80s. But in the 70s, there was an oil crisis, and the oil price around the world uh, soared. And so Venezuela's income soared, which was great initially, but the oil industries became nationalized in 1976, partly due to this, and this led to massive increases in public spending and debts and things like that, which carried over into the 1980s, and that's when the oil prices collapsed uh, around the world. And so this period of economic, or sorry, I should say oil collapse in terms of the overall price crippled the Venezuelan economy, and this is where we started to see some cracks take place. Now, I'm going to skip a handful of years here and kind of jump ahead to Hugo Chavez, because uh, this is where we see a lot of the, the current problems start to take place. But keep in mind that for a decade or two prior to this, there were some problems when the, the oil prices dropped. Their currency was devalued at one point. Uh, there was a huge economic crisis in the 1980s. And in the late 1980s, there was actually a, a political crisis where there were a lot of riots uh, during one of the, I think it was President Perez's administration. Uh, and there were actually a couple different coups, that, or actually attempted coups that took place in 1992, including one by Hugo Chavez. Uh, that's where he first kind of became a, a big deal. And while he was ultimately pardoned a handful of years later, uh, with his all political rights reinstated, that allows him to kind of start to gain legitimacy again. And he ultimately gains the presidency in 1999. So Chavez becomes elected president. He's actually elected in 1998, uh, but really kind of takes power in 99. And he really is noted for being very socialist in a lot of his policies. So he institutes a lot of like welfare programs and these sorts of things in social engineering programs as well. And this does result in some support, especially among some of the poor in the country. But this also leads to a lot of national strikes. There were a couple coup attempts. He was actually briefly ousted from power in 2002. And over the next decade, the, their currency experiences several devaluations, in part due to a lot of these policies by Chavez. Chavez's organization, his administration, was also marked by heavy amounts of corruption as well. And so a lot of the profits that you would have typically found from an oil-producing country were lost to these kind of social engineering programs and to the corruption instead of kind of reinvesting in what they needed to do to maintain a lot of oil production. Now, Chavez ultimately dies in 2013. Uh, he died of cancer, I believe. There were some sort of medical complications with cancer. And so he passed away in 2013. And Nicolas Maduro comes to power. Uh, he is the one who was elected democratically after the death of Chavez. Now, Chavez had actually picked Maduro special as his, 
his, as his appointed successor. Uh, he was actually considered the vice president kind of before uh, Chavez died. And so in this shortened election period right after Chavez's death, Maduro becomes elected president as the the heir to the throne, more or less, as he, he had been specially picked by, by Chavez. Now, since Chavez died and Maduro took power, uh, we have seen Venezuela move even further down the road towards socialism, massive government spending, and ultimately into kind of a dictatorship of sorts. There were still some democratic institutions in place during the Chavez's regime, but under Maduro, those really erode even further. Uh, Chavez started it, Maduro is kind of finishing it. And so there have been massive protests uh, starting in 2014, you know, high levels of criminal violence, corruption, hyperinflation, scarcity of basic goods, bread lines, food lines, uh, and basically, a lot of this is due to policies passed by the federal government under Chavez, but also under Maduro. And so these demonstrations and riots have led to fatalities. It's been violent. And human rights groups have started to get involved uh, as well. Now, in February of 2013, so this is just before Chavez dies, Venezuela devalues its currency again due to rising shortages, specifically milk, flour, bread, other types of necessities like that. And this leads to a rise in starvation and malnutrition, especially among children. And so this actually kicks off a period of economic recession that started about the next year. And by 2015, Venezuela has the world's highest inflation rate. Their rate has surpassed 100%. It's the highest in the, in the country's history at this point, although as we'll talk about, it gets much, much worse. And because of a lot of the corruption elements and human rights violations that are taking place there, countries around the world start to look at that and consider sanctions. 2017, Donald Trump imposes economic sanctions on Venezuela. And so this leads to pretty much an economic emergency in the country. And actually, a little bit before the sanctions are placed, Colombia actually opens up their border crossings temporarily to allow Venezuelans to cross into Colombia to help per help them purchase food and just basic basic items. And we start to see a rise in uh, starvation across the country. Uh, we see something like 15% of Venezuelans are essentially eating food waste, you know, uh, things thrown away by restaurants and hotels and, and things like that. They don't have their own food. Uh, and so we start to see cracks all over the country, economically, politically, in the justice system. And in 2017, around the same time as the Trump administration imposing economic sanctions, Venezuela undergoes a constitutional crisis. And by this, I mean opposition leaders in, in the country officially accused Maduro of being a dictator. And the reason they did this is that there was a, is a court in Venezuela called the Supreme Tribunal. And it's basically aligned with the Maduro regime and the Maduro administration. And it was essentially overturning a lot of lower court decisions all in favor of Maduro. And this leads to a lot of problems, a lot, again, more protests, uh, more accusations. You start to see the world taking much more notice of what's going on here. And Maduro, in, by the end of 2017, has taken some pretty extreme steps. The most extreme being that any sort of leading opposition parties are banned from taking place in the presidential vote. And so he basically bans anybody who opposes him from taking part in running against him. And so he wins the next election in 2018 with something like two-thirds of the vote. But this result becomes fraudulent, or I should say accused of being fraudulent, by a lot of different countries around the world, including the United States. Again, Canada, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, 
Chile, France has, has now come out about this as well. And so we're starting to see this move to support Guaido as president. All right, now that's broad overview, covers a lot of decades. I know went through that really, really fast, but let's now back up again and talk a little bit about Maduro himself, where he came from. Uh, he is the president of Venezuela, or I should say was, depending on who you're listening to right now, has been in power since 2013. Prior to that, he was the, the vice president of Venezuela. Uh, he actually was the minister of foreign affairs for several years under Hugo Chavez as well. But he comes from just, I don't say a poor background, but a much lower class background. He actually started working as a bus driver very early on. Then he uh, became the leader of a trade union and eventually gets elected to the National Assembly in Venezuela in 2000. And so he kind of starts to work his way up the ladder within the Venezuelan government under Chavez, ultimately culminating in being made foreign minister. And so this is his first like major role in government. Uh, he is considered one of the most capable administrators of Chavez's inner circle. And so shortly before Chavez dies, he appoints him as the vice president so that when he does die, Maduro kind of assumes the powers and the responsibilities of the president and moves into that position. Now, about six months after he's elected, Maduro is given the power by the Venezuelan legislature to do something uh, called rule by decree. And this is a style of, of governing that basically allows for a single person or a small group, in this case, a single person, to very quickly create and change law without being challenged. It's usually seen uh, by dictators, monarchs, so if you have a king or a queen, those type of things, any sort of military leadership in government. And so he gets this power about six months after being elected, and he starts to wield it quite strongly, instituting a lot of Chavez's policies and then a lot more strong policies in that same vein as well. Uh, one of these policies, probably one of the first big ones that he does, is something that he calls the Safe Homeland Program. This is a massive police and military campaign uh, that was designed to build security in the country. And the reason this kind of goes into place is because the homicide rate in Venezuela was considered one of the highest in the world. Uh, something like 16,000 people were killed every year. That's a rate of like 54 people per every 100,000. And some have actually claimed it's even higher than that as well, as high as in, into the 70s per 100,000. And so homicides were on the rise, murder was on the rise, and so Maduro implements this program. The problem is the program basically gives military and police massive power. And we start to see... Uh, they claim it actually reduces homicides at first, but in 2018, just last year, we saw that homicides were up to about a rate of 81 to 82 per 100,000 people, so actually even higher than they were prior to this program. He's also known for a lot of uh, economic policies. Most of these he continued from his predecessor, Chavez, and a lot of the problems that you see today were actually started under Chavez as well. High inflation rate, shortages of goods and and food. And a lot of this actually starts to spiral out of control for him. Uh, Venezuela actually gets ranked very, very high on the list, the world's list of something called the misery index. This is uh, an economic indicator. It's not about like sadness as much as it sounds, but it helps show how the average citizen in the country is doing economically. And so they were, again, the worst in the world, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, etc. And they essentially have been in economic depression since, since 2014. 
Now, with that, let's jump forward a little bit and talk a little bit about this opposition leader, and then we can get into what's really going on in Venezuela today. So the opposition leader is a man by the name of Juan Guaido, or Guaido, and so he is actually an engineer by trade, but has been serving as the president of the National Assembly, that parliament, uh, just in the last month or so. Now, he is a member of what's called the Popular Will Party. It's kind of a centrist social democratic type policy. We would still consider it fairly liberal uh, here in America, but it's considered much more right-wing in Venezuela where they're essentially uh, run by a, a strong socialist in from Chavez and now Maduro. Uh, so they are a part of kind of democratic socialism and they actually formed in response to Maduro. And to, there was a lot of accusations of infringing on freedoms, human rights, problems like that. And so they, they tried to build this party as an opposition to Maduro and Maduro's government. Now, Guaido, as I said, was an engineer by trade. He uh, was an industrial engineer. He got his license in 2007 from a university in Venezuela. Uh, it's actually a large private university there. And he actually, again, kind of grew up out of some pretty poor circumstances. Uh, there was something back in 1999 called the Vargas Tragedy. It was a huge natural disaster, flash floods uh, that killed tens of thousands of people. And his family was actually homeless uh, temporarily during this time period. And this tragedy is actually what helped prompt a lot of his now political views. Because he saw that the government of Hugo Chavez at the time was very ineffective in responding to this disaster. Now, during his time in college, he actually gets involved in politics. He gets involved in this kind of student-led political movement that was protesting against the Venezuelan government. Uh, now, at the time, it was started initially to protest some uh, some media issues. There was uh, the government was basically cracking down on some broadcasting licenses of any sort of independent television networks. As it kind of grows they start to protest larger and larger concerns, kind of broader reforms by Chavez, including uh, some constitutional referendums. And so Guaido gets his start in politics in the student-led movement. And by 2009, he actually becomes one of the founding members of this political party, the Popular Will, that is in opposition to Maduro and to, and to Chavez. By 2015, he gets a full seat in the National Assembly. And just at the end of last year, in December of 2018, he is elected president of the National Assembly in Venezuela. And so he gets sworn in actually just a few weeks ago. And when the election of Maduro, which took, or should I say, when the inauguration of Maduro took place a handful of days later, Guaido announces that he's going to challenge Maduro's claim to the presidency. And he does this because he says that the election was fraudulent, therefore the inauguration is illegitimate. And he cites the Venezuelan constitution, which says that if there is a vacancy in the office of the president, the president of the National Assembly shall, shall take charge of the presidency of the republic. That's a quote. Uh, on an interim basis until they can get a new election. And so he says that this fraudulent election and the illegitimate inauguration means that there is actually a vacancy in the office of the president, even though Maduro kind of sort of acts as president. And so he cites the constitution and says that he is uh, taking charge of the country. And so that's where he kind of comes from. That's the argument that he's using. And so you have a lot of countries then who are looking at that and taking sides. And so you have a lot of countries, especially across uh, South America, 
but also uh, Canada, the United States, that recognize Guaido as the formal president. You also have a lot of countries across Europe that support the National Assembly, including some of the major powers like England and France and Germany and Spain. And then you also, and then, but then you also have a handful of countries that have said no, and they recognize Maduro. Now, most of these countries, you could probably guess, countries like Russia, Iran, Turkey, China, uh, Mexico is in there as well, and several others too. And so this is the challenge that's taking place right now. And then just in the last few days, the Venezuelan military announced their support for Maduro as well. So he has the support of the physical strength of the country right now too. Now, because of all of this, Maduro himself has, as I think I mentioned, uh, accused the United States and some of these other countries of participating in a coup. And so in particular, he has broken relationship with the United States. Uh, he's closing the Venezuelan embassy here in, in D.C., but he's also requested that American diplomats and American ambassadors leave the country. Uh, he gave them 72 hours as of last week. But the United States State Department has basically said they're not going to go along with that. They don't recognize his authority to close their embassy, and so they're not going to. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, though, because the military is siding with Maduro, that makes things a little bit more dangerous for people who are staying there, Americans, American diplomats. So the United States and Trump administration have announced that they're going to be pulling out any sort of non-essential personnel, but they are still leaving the embassy and some personnel in place there in Venezuela. Now, Donald Trump has also, he's, he's been very critical of Maduro over the years, but he has actually kind of implied that the United States might be willing to actually use military force in this case to try to oust Maduro and help usher in uh, Guaido or you know the next next president whenever they have a formal election again. This is probably unlikely from my personal perspective. I, I, again, I don't know all the background dealings or what's happening behind the scenes, what conversations are being had. I think this seems a bit unlikely. Uh, the United States has had several accusations thrown against it uh, about interfering in other countries and their sovereignty. And so to do so again would probably be very devastating to United States uh, rep reputation, even though countries like Canada and France and some of these other countries in Europe are kind of on the side of Guaido and the parliament there. Having a military incursion into another country because of a fraudulent election or something to this effect is probably unlikely and probably not the best move at this point. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen down the road, but Venezuela doesn't really pose any sort of serious security threat to the United States. And so the using American military in this kind of standoff with Maduro is, is not being ruled out. And I, I personally wouldn't rule it out entirely either. I think it's probably at this point more of a threat than anything, not something we would actually follow through on. But the, the option is there, and uh, as I said, Trump has kind of hinted that he might be willing to, to do this at some point in time. Now, as for countries that are not the United States, particularly some of the powers in Europe, uh, they have given Maduro an ultimatum of sorts, basically insisting that he needs to call a new set of elections, uh, or else they will officially recognize Guaido, the ones who haven't yet already. And so, especially coming out of like the, the UN and uh, the EU and some of these other places, we've seen some division among world powers as to what to do. But there are other countries, in addition to the United States, who are really putting pressure on Venezuela. Now, Venezuela has pr pretty much rejected this ultimatum. There was a quote uh, by one of their foreign ministers, and he said, nobody is going to give us deadlines or tell us if there are elections or not. But you have some uh, Security Council members of the UN, France and the UK, 
as well as some other countries, Germany and Spain, uh, other European countries that have all kind of coordinated and come together to insist that elections are going to be called in Venezuela within about a week or so. I think that also is probably unlikely to happen. It's probably, again, more of a, a threat. I, honestly, I don't know how serious the EU and some of these countries are about formally recognizing Guaido and what they might do if Maduro doesn't cave to their demands. But the EU has called for fresh elections and they have threatened, quote, further actions, whatever that might mean um, down the road. Now, the UN doesn't have a super strong reputation when it comes to stepping in in places like this. They have stepped in in certain cases and done good work in, in like civil conflicts in the past. But there are also a lot of cases where they've kind of failed as well, uh, in particular with Russia and China on the opposing side of this. It seems unlikely that the UN would do anything because Russia and China are going to veto anything that happens. It's kind of this is what happened during the Cold War. The UN kind of stood idly by on virtually every conflict during that era because either the Soviet Union or the United States vetoed everything. And so I kind of suspect, at least at the UN level. That's what's going to happen here. Nothing really is going to take place. They're not going to step in and do anything. But the EU and potentially individual countries could theoretically do something. I don't know what that quote about further actions necessarily means, but it's worth keeping an eye on going forward uh, because it does. there is some weight to it given the fact that it seems to be a coordinated movement across multiple countries, and in particular several world powers. But all of that said, this is actually a pretty fascinating case study of, of what, po what politics can really do, because Venezuela actually has more oil reserves than Saudi Arabia right now, uh, yet they have you know, more poverty than pretty much any other country in this hemisphere. They're one, they're one of the poorest countries, not the poorest, but they're right up there, despite being one of the richest countries you know, just 50, 60 years ago. Uh, as I mentioned back in 1950, I believe it was, Venezuela was the fourth richest economy in the world. There's only a couple of countries ahead of it, uh, and they were ahead of countries like Canada, Japan, China, and even today, you know, their oil, they, they account for something like one fifth of all of the world's oil is in Venezuela, almost. I think it's like 18% or so. And yet they're, they're plummeting economically. Their GDP per capita has dropped by almost half in the last five years alone. Their inflation rate at the moment is over a million percent. I mean, that's unheard of. I mean, that, that's, that's incredible. It's insane. It, last, last I heard, it was like 1.3 million percent. I was actually reading an article about this recently that said literal monopoly money is worth more than Venezuelan currency because of the paper it's printed on. And that's just unbelievable. And so it's, it's kind of a, a fascinating case. I mean, it's obviously devastating and there's a lot of things going wrong there. Food shortages, people are fleeing the country, something like 3 million Venezuelans have tried to flee the country. That's about a tenth of their overall population. Uh, we're seeing starvation. Uh, they're starting to, the people themselves are like sneaking into zoos and killing off animals like flamingos and things like that for food because they don't have food. I mean, this is brutally, brutally bad. And yet I, I think it's a, an interesting case study on what happens when democracy is overtaken by authoritarian regimes and what certain types of socialist policies can really do to a country um, when they're implemented in this in this fashion uh, it leads to a lot of corruption it leads to a lot of economic decay as well 
And this is made abundantly clear when you really consider what's changed in Venezuela. Uh, if you just look at, say, 1970, just as an example, Venezuela was one of Latin America's oldest, strongest democracies. Uh, it was you know, working towards good health care, had fairly high education among its citizens. It was a model among the, like in the region for social mobility. People could climb the social ladder. Uh, immigrants across the region, even immigrants from Europe were flooding there. They had an open political system, freedom of the press, uh, freedom uh, politically. There were elections, regu like regular elections. They alternated power peacefully. And thanks to some alliances and like trade ties with the United States, I mean, it was the headquarters for a lot of Latin American corporations as well. It had some of the best infrastructure in, in all of South America. Um, That's not, not to say it didn't have problems. It did still have corruption and injustice. Uh, it was still developing, but it was way ahead of any of the other countries in the region by almost any measure. And yet now it's considered one of the most impoverished nations uh, in the region, but also in the world. It, it's a dictatorship. You know, its schools are deserted. Uh, its healthcare system is is in the tank. Uh, there's massive amounts of corruption. We're seeing diseases that had been long since extinct, extinct in the area, like malaria, measles coming back. People can't even afford to get food. They can't afford to eat. We're seeing violence. Homicides rise drastically. We're seeing, instead of migrants coming into the country, we're seeing refugees fleeing. By the end of this past year, its economy has dropped by almost 50% in just five years. I mean, that's that's incredible. Five years and it's lost almost its entire economy. Uh, we're seeing prices on things there double almost every month. Uh, I think, actually, it's I think it's less than a month now. I think they're saying about every 25 days, prices on things double. So inflation is still going up. Uh, it doesn't have much in the way of transport services. It's airport the main airport in Venezuela is essentially deserted and closed. There's only a handful of flights that come in and out of it. And yet those two countries I just described, this is the same country, just 40 years apart, 50 years apart. And it's really interesting because it's, as I said, kind of a good case study on how things can go drastically, drastically wrong. And a lot of this goes under uh, Hugo Chavez's leadership and now his successor too. There's a lot of policies that have just been destructive across the entire country authoritarianism has been rising and we, there's actually a huge amount of cuban influence as well in the country uh, that you see that has created a lot of problems essentially at this point venezuela can be considered almost a failed state it's just run by an autocrat who is only in it for himself and kind of beholden to, to cuba and some other you know foreign leaders and that sort of thing and a lot of it doesn't make sense too because as i mentioned they have so much oil there you think they would be rolling in it and yet they, they don't. You know, there's been decades of gradual economic decline that have really steepened in, in the last five to ten years. And while it's true that any country that is so beholden to oil prices can experience some drastic changes, you see this in countries across the Middle East as well, you know, that, that doesn't really explain all of it. There's a lot of these socialist programs and socialist policies that were hugely influential in spearheading this destruction. And we're at a point now where, because of how many protests there are, and these protests are actually starting to get a little violent, there's been a, a, over a dozen people killed in the last week or so. I want to say it's actually close to two dozen now. And they're kind of at a point in Venezuela where one wrong spark in the wrong spot by the wrong person could set off an entire civil war across the country. If that happens, and again, we all kind of hope that doesn't happen, but if it does, 
I think you see the possibility of military intervention from either the United States or somewhere else, I think that the chance of that rises pretty drastically. Now, the U.S. does have kind of a track record of invading Latin American countries. We've done this with interventions across the region many, many times. Uh, not as so much recently, but if you go back a few decades, we did it you know, quite a few times, both to kind of directly but also indirectly. It's resulted in a lot of regime changes over the last century. And so this, this track record is probably in the back of a lot of people's minds. But again, if we see this spill over into a civil war, and it wouldn't take a whole lot for that to happen, I think the chance of some sort of outside military intervention, and again, it may not be the United States, it could be the UN or the EU or some other country as well, I think the chance of that intervention skyrockets. It may not be uh, 100%, but it will go up. And I think lost in a lot of this too we often focus on like the politics of Maduro and Guaido and what's the United States going to do. But the people of Venezuela are the ones who are really suffering here and they're going undergoing a humanitarian crisis. I've mentioned a couple times, there's literal starvation. They're killing dogs. They're killing flamingos. Uh, they're, they're butchering zoo animals just to have meat to eat because they, they're literally starving. Uh, they can't afford to buy bread. Uh, their currency is essentially worthless. You might as well just burn it. Venezuela is essentially in a tailspin here, and it's really hurting the people. You know, decades of poor governance have driven what could be one of the most prosperous countries in the world to complete ruin. Uh, I mean, and, and as I mentioned, you do see this a little bit with oil countries. Uh, and Venezuela has you know some of the world's largest oil reserves. It kind of goes up and down with the the cost of oil, but this is a tailspin that Venezuela probably won't be able to emerge from. Uh, at least for a long, long time, and maybe not without some sort of massive upheaval in the country as well. Now, Venezuela is considered um, what's called a petrostate. Uh, this is a, where government income is very reliant on oil and natural gas. And so, uh, just to move forward, we'll end the episode with this. If they are to recover, the best way for it to do so is to find ways to invest in these vast oil revenues. And there are other countries that are petrostates in the world. It'd be Saudi Arabia would be one, even Russia, a lot of countries across the Middle East, North Africa, you know, Algeria, Iran, Mexico would probably be considered a petrostate. They use a lot of oil there. The UAE, Qatar, Ecuador. And so these kind of petrostate economies are left very vulnerable to huge swings in energy prices. It's actually something called a resource curse or the, it's called the Dutch disease. It's this idea that a resource boom, essentially finding oil or something like that, you get a lot of inflow of capital, which then sucks labor and capital away from other sectors of the economy, agriculture, manufacturing, and makes them very reliant on one industry. And then they become very dependent on that and on prices there. But at the same time, this is the resource that Venezuela has. And if they don't invest in that industry, as opposed to padding the pockets of Maduro and those in power, you know, they're not really going to be able to utilize this. Now, as that starts to grow, what they would need to do is try to develop other industries as well, go back to some agriculture, things like that. I mean, that's the only way that they they really have a chance of recovering from this. Because essentially at this point, I mean, they are a failed petrostate. And they have become massively, massively dependent on the little oil that they do put out. Uh, something like 98% of all their export earnings come from oil sales. Uh, over half, I believe, of their entire GDP is in oil, is in the oil industry. And one of the problems they're running into is that the oil output has been declining. Uh, they're actually at, at a new low in 2018. 
And so they're not really investing in producing the oil, and yet they're so dependent on the earnings that come from it that they're just not able to keep up. You know, their inflation, as I said, is over a million percent. Their debt is, actually, they're defaulting on their debt. They've missed billions of dollars in payments just in the last, like, year and a half. Uh, And I'll just kind of end with this. Obviously, I could go on with this episode for the next hour. There's so much here that we could really touch on it. Maybe I should do a whole episode on just Venezuelan politics and how Venezuela has really gotten here. But I'll end with this and how it's really hurting the people. Nine out of 10 people in Venezuela now live underneath the poverty line. They live in poverty, 90%. Roughly one in 10 have fled the country trying to get help elsewhere. Uh, There's severe shortages in food, medical supplies, healthcare is terrible. And in 2017, I haven't seen the numbers for 2018 yet, but in 2017, the average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds in body weight across the whole country. The average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds. And if something doesn't happen soon, unfortunately, I'm afraid this country is going to completely go under whatever they have left, Um, which is why so many countries like the United States and the EU are concerned. And uh, I think this is something that we really need to keep a very close eye on going forward. Um, This is one of, I know a lot of times we talk about like Syria, the civil war there. I did the whole thing on Yemen at one point. But what's happening in Venezuela right now is one of the worst crises in the world. And if they fall that's going to cause a massive vacuum for power in the region as well. Uh, and we, we've seen what happens when you get a vacuum for power in the Middle East. It would not be that far out of the realm of possibility for something similar to happen in Venezuela as well. Uh, so this is something just keep a close eye on. You know, Pray for these people. Pray that something good comes out of this going forward. And pray for those who are in power because the, the risk of complete catastrophe, which, again, they're already on the verge, if not past that line already, is incredibly high here. But with that, I think we're going to go ahead and shut down the episode. This has already been kind of a long episode. I appreciate you guys sticking with me, though, and and listening. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, if you are interested in connecting with me further, you can find me on social media. I am at Justin R underscore Kinney. That's on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook at J Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. Find me there. Please follow me. Subscribe. Uh, subscribe to the episode too, wherever you listen to it on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or TuneIn or any of these other places. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, leave me a review if you could as well. I, I really appreciate those. If you I want to write a few sentences, that's great. If you just want to just give me a star rating, that would be awesome as well. I'm working to build this podcast, uh, especially going into the new year in 2019. So I really appreciate all of y'all's support. Uh, if you are interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast or advertising on the podcast, I would love to talk to you more about that possibility, so please get in contact with me. Uh, But with that, I think we are just about out of time. So, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. 